You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. It's Lanyap Podcast. We got Doug and Greg Stokes, Stokes Family Office. Before we get started in talking about markets and what's happened over the last week, what we've been talking about really a lot this year has been the euro and the U.S. dollar approaching parity. And last month, actually, the U.S. dollar was for one day slightly worth more than the euro. And so Greg really took a lot of that discussion and put it into practice. He's sitting in Lisbon, Portugal right now. How is it over there? Well, it's amazing. I mean, I'm sitting outside. It's nice to get out of New Orleans this time of the year and spend some one-on-one time with my wife. But it's really beautiful. And just from a economic standpoint, you're right. The euro and the dollar being at parity is amazing. We just got back from a lunch, for example. And Lisbon's a little bit unique in this regards because it it's known for having sort of Eastern European prices, but it's in Western Europe. Portugal's the furthest west in, in Europe that you can go, basically. But we just spent 120 euro and had like a multi-course lunch and everything on the water. So life is good, but it's good to be catching up with you and and it's also good to be here as well, too. So, yeah, we'll try to keep your time on the podcast limited so you can get back to doing better things than this. But um, just talk about the town in general and what your plans are and maybe Lisbon versus Madrid for comparison. What is it to do in Portugal versus Spain? So before I travel anywhere, I like to do a lot of research and educate myself on the history of a place. And, and the interesting thing about Lisbon from a historical standpoint was... They've got all of this history related to the mariner culture. Vasco da Gama was a famous Portuguese mariner. They discovered the Cape of Good Hope around Africa, and they basically colonized India and, and made a ton of money off of that from a historical perspective. And then eventually they colonized Brazil. So Lisbon itself was one of the five great capitals in Europe for a long period of time. In the 1700s, it was destroyed by an earthquake. And so it's sort of a a mixture between this old world capital that was one of the richest in the world that was almost completely destroyed in the mid 1700s and had to rebuild. And so it's kind of this interesting dichotomy. And from the perspective of Madrid, I see a lot of similarities and I'll see a lot of differences. Obviously, the language is different. Portuguese is and then Spanish, Castilian Spanish, but I understand Spanish pretty well. And, and it's interesting to see the parallels in the language. I just learned so much and appreciate traveling so much. And I've really appreciated the limited amount of time that I've spent here so far. And I'm looking forward to exploring more and getting the best bang for my buck with the, you know, the euro being at the same price as the dollar and in one of the most inexpensive places to visit in Western Europe. So you're there four days and Vienna four days. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. So I've got going to Vienna was one of the great European capitals at, you know, for centuries as well, too. So we're going to have a good old time. And have some much needed mommy daddy time, which is when you have three young kids, as you know, you don't get a whole lot of that. So kids are in camp right now, which is big kids are in camp. And that's a welcome phase of life for us. You know, we can have that time and for a couple of weeks where we can go do what we want to do. And we chose this place in Vienna and I'll let you guys know how it goes. But it's a really exciting for us. Yeah, we'll get an update next week on how yeah, I think you're when, on our next podcast, you'll be in Austria. And so we can hear all about Lisbon, although we'll have a guest on that particular podcast. 
a lot of news has happened. You were in the office last week, but a lot of news has happened in the last week that we should discuss today. I think the most controversial one was, I guess it was sort of twofold. Number one, the action of the Federal Reserve of raising rates by 75 basis points, which was predicted last week. But also in response to that, more of a dovish stance on future rate increases, which sort of dovetails into the next point, which was economic data came out, I think it was Thursday of last week. And basically, it showed that we've had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And there's been a a lot of political debate, depending on what side of the aisle that you sit on as to whether we're in a recession or not. So maybe just give me your comments on, uh, on that sort of controversial subject of recession or not. Well, we talked about this last podcast that the economy and the markets are two distinct things. The economy might be in a situation where it's in a recession, but the markets typically look, they're forward looking. And so even though the data continues to get worse and worse, like for example, we talked about this offline, there's what's called a misery index that is a calculation of inflation and the unemployment rate and basically looks at how far people's dollars are going relative to their employment stance. That's at a significant historical high right now. So things seem really bad right now, and they're probably going to get worse from just a a data standpoint, because data comes out, you're looking at historical data and data in the relatively near term. But the markets seem to have looked past all of that for the time being. Like the markets are basically off like 12% from the bottom, and they're about probably about 15% from their all-time highs. So things may go back, you know, we may retest the bottoms, like the S&P bottomed at like 3,600 points or something like that. And as we talk, we're close to about 4,100 in the S&P. But it'll be really interesting to see how all these things play out. And as it relates to the definition of a recession is, that's been a sort of controversial topic lately. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that piece and whether or not you think that really matters. I don't think the definition matters at all. However, I've always understood it as two negative quarters of GDP growth. So I think it's just a lot of political back and forth on that. Obviously, Republicans want Biden to be responsible for or oversee a recession. And Democrats want to point to historically low unemployment rates during these economic slowdowns. I think the bottom line is that people are feeling it right now just because of high gas prices higher rents, higher home prices, increased interest rates, et cetera, and all outpacing wage growth. And so I think that that's a better indication of this. And and I'm not going to show my hand on political beliefs, but no matter way that you cut it, I think it's just not, people are not happy in this current situation. And so... Right. We talked about it as well, too. Last week, consumer confidence is like 60-year lows right now. So it doesn't really matter if we're in a recession by whatever parameters they're or defined or not. But yeah, I mean, it just doesn't matter. People are not happy right now. And that's the only thing that really matters and everything else is really semantics. So I guess a, a positive on inflation, and this was a stat from last week, and I think we discussed it, gas prices had declined for 40 straight days. If you look at the commodity index today, commodities are getting beat up pretty dramatically. Mortgage rates, we just talked about this, but Mortgage News Daily, it's a website, is now posting the average 30-year mortgage at just over 5% when it peaked about 6.2% in mid-June. So if you look at that as all of an indication of where inflation is going, I would expect that the next few prints for inflation are going to be dramatically lower than we saw 
in June of 9.1% or whatever the headline CPI number was. And I think that that's a lot of that is it's either good or bad. The good news, and we talked about this previously, but the good news could be that the Fed is orchestrating a soft landing, that inflation's coming off of a a multi-year, multi-decade high, and it will normalize over time. And I think that's what the market has been pricing in over the last few weeks with this major rebound in equities. The potential negative there is that there's an overcorrection and that we're in a disinflationary, then deflationary environment in which there's a hard economic landing. I'm curious as to you know, where you are positioning, at least how you're thinking about portfolios, where you're positioning the next, let's call it 12 months from the looking at economic data. Do you have any comments? You know, we all think about this, you and I, but think about it the same way as far as, you know, 12 months sort of prognostications are really anybody's guess. My crystal ball is no clearer than the, you know, the average other person's crystal ball. But I like to look at things through, and you do as well, too, through the lens of, you know, five, 10 years. And the way that I think about it from the standpoint of the next five or 10 years is that these kind of things, bear markets, et cetera, happen. And it's my sort of prognostication, if there is a prognostication, that we're probably going to be talking about something else in 24 or 36 months besides this period of time. But I mean, obviously, things go the other way. Here's what my crystal ball says in the next 12 months. I think that things are probably going to slowly return. You know, If you look at things from the bond market perspective, the bond market and the 30-year mortgage market have really come off multi-year highs. The the 10-year treasury got up to about 3.3%. At one point in time, about two or three months ago, and now it's at 2.6%. The S&P has kind of recovered a little bit. It seems like things are heading back to more of a stable type of environment in the markets. Again, things can change on a dime, but I would probably guess in the next 12 months that that trend continues. But again, it could go the complete opposite way. But if I'm looking at this through the five or 10-year time frame, and even probably sooner than that, it's my belief that we're probably going to be talking about other problems. And that's really just been what we've seen in our career, that these issues du jour, like this particular raising cycle. So they're going to obviously have to edit that part out. But bottom line is that I think in 36, 48, 60 months, we're going to be talking about something else. I do think that just in my experience in dealing with people, people may not even remember when we look back at these sort of correction cycles. And then over that time frame, they might remember some economic pain associated with this, but it might not be something that people can even recall what the whole cause and effect of this was. Yeah, I would imagine that this one will be a memorable one because specifically centered around inflation. I don't think people are going to remember exactly what markets did, but this is historic from an inflation perspective and, and that misery component that we were talking about. The piece that was hurting people the most has been really food prices and gasoline prices, and those have just increased dramatically. I'm guessing people are going to remember that. But one way I think about this, and we're exactly aligned here and thinking about this from the perspective of five to 10 years, I'm looking at this is from JP Morgan's Guide to the Market. I think they've changed this on a daily basis, but this is as of the end of July, which was yesterday, it's August 1st right now, the uh, S&P 500's PE ratio on a forward expected earnings. Now, earnings could change. That's one thing we're going to be looking at is do companies revise earnings on a go forward basis to the downside because of slowing economic conditions. But as of today, the Ford S&P 500 trades at 17.44 times 
the 25-year average is 16.85 times. We're basically exactly at the average. That's one piece. The other side of the equation is that interest rates have increased dramatically since the start of the year. So how I view this is we've got a, let's call it average stock side of the equation and a much more favorable bond side of the equation sitting here August 1st. How we're viewing portfolios is when I'm in a meeting right now and doing long-term cash flow planning, I feel really good about projections at you know decent rates of return just because the bond side is so much more attractive now than it was six months ago. You can get a little bit more conservative in a portfolio and still hit long-term targets, at least under you know various rate of return scenarios. The interesting thing about the stock market and the bond market is when yields were a lot higher and bonds than they had been in a long time, they still are very much higher than they were not too long ago. It was really difficult for people to buy fixed income you know, and earn 4 or 5% rates on high-quality bonds. But I think that that's really an opportunity that people had and still have to a degree that this is probably not going to be there for a long period of time, especially if historical inflation reverts back to the mean. But yeah, it really has been fascinating. We buy bonds for people that need them in their allocations, obviously. And, and we were seeing rates that we haven't really seen in our career on the municipal bond side of the equation and the corporate bond side of the equation. Greg, I have a, just an interesting a dichotomy that happened last week. We had Walmart post earnings in which there was a major revision to their sales and earnings estimates related to economic slowdown, inflation, et cetera. And then we had Amazon come out and blow everything out of the water. A lot of the narrative earlier this year was related to Amazon's slowdown in capital expenditures. They're not building as many warehouses. E-commerce as a percentage of sales was flatlining. And then we see numbers like this related to these retail brick and mortar sales versus e-commerce. So what are your thoughts on just generally the economy and then the dichotomy between what Amazon was showing and Walmart and Target? I think that especially for people that exist in the lower or middle income to lower middle income space, that the rise in prices on like basic living needs like gasoline, food, etc., have really impacted their ability to spend on sort of discretionary items. And that's exactly what was seen in terms of the, the Walmart numbers. And then Amazon has like a high frequency and viewpoint in terms of people's spending habits. And so they reacted accordingly earlier in the year. I mean, that was pretty interesting for them to be able to respond that quickly and cut back capital expenditures. So I think that all of these dynamics that exist presently are really informative. I think that eventually, assuming that, like you mentioned, the prices of gasoline have come down dramatically over the last couple of months, same thing goes with food products. And that's going to probably take some time to ripple through the economy. But assuming that the prices of those goods and products and ancillary services go down, then I think that's been a long-term positive for the economy. And that's what the Fed's trying to do. And if they can somehow figure out a way to have a soft landing, which is what they're trying to do by slowing down the economy, slowing down spending without causing a recession, I think that would be a pretty admirable result. I also saw recently that Bill Ackman posted on Twitter, did you see this, Doug, that he was very complimentary of Jay Powell during the pandemic and his ability to lead the markets through that period of time. And so if he's able to basically keep the economy afloat 
to a large degree, the market's functioning during the pandemic. And if he's able to, to correct this situation during this whole inflation situation without sinking the ships, so to speak, then I think that would another, be also something that would be another feather in his hat. Yeah, but as it relates to Bill Ackman, I don't believe anything that guy says on, uh, on Twitter just because he's got a, I mean, he's got a hedge fund with a closed book and has a bunch of trades that are on that at any given time. Like in the March of 2020, he went on CNBC and was basically crying. I think he was crying. I don't want to be accused of libel or slander. But yeah, he was like emotional on CNBC calling for immediate action at the Fed and on the fiscal level in Congress. He had a short credit default swap short on at the time that he closed and went long stocks and was like one of the best trades in history. Uh, during March. And I don't know what his his positioning is right now. But I would assume that his commentary, whether it's positive or negative related to what the actions of the Federal Reserve are directly aligned with how his portfolio looks at the hedge fund level. So, <laughs> You're definitely right about that. <laughs> we'll see. One thing that I think is going to be difficult for the Fed to to really react to is a lot of the inflation data may be you know, come and go. We have food prices coming down, commodity prices coming down, specifically energy prices coming down, shipping prices coming down from Shanghai to LA, for example. But wages have gone up. Housing prices have gone up substantially and rents sort of lag. Housing prices increase. So I don't imagine a scenario in which people are forced to take less wages other than through unemployment or rents go down by basically a landlord telling a tenant, we're going to reduce your rent by 10% this year. So those sticky components of inflation don't really go away like you know a price of a barrel of oil, for example. And so one of my concerns as it relates to this particular cycle is the sticky component not really going down while the less sticky component, commodities, food prices, energy prices, et cetera getting drawn down dramatically. And, and so we'll see how the Fed is able to position sort of uh, central bank policy around growth in rental rates, because that really hasn't been seen yet. And then growth in wages, because those have just started to ramp up. Right. And there's also a psychological aspect to it as well, too, that people that sell goods and services understand that people are more comfortable with paying higher prices for goods and services. So that the Fed's really trying to correct that sort of behavior before it gets out of hand as well, too. I think that's the, the general thesis. And that's what they don't want to have a repeat of what happened in the late 70s and early 80s. So it'll be really interesting to see how that all plays out. That's a really good point about the sort of intangible aspects and sticky aspects to this that are not something that are going to correct in, in a short-term manner. In that same regards, like companies are used to making money off of and raising prices on customers because their customers are more used to inflation than they have been in the past, the recent past. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that was very indicative of that sort of strategy and behavior in the new car market. There's still a whole lot of pent-up demand for new cars because the ability to get semiconductors was really backlogged, et cetera. But I think it's going to take a while for that sort of behavior to sort of flush out of the system. People are still paying for new cars above MSRP, which is really something that was not happening in the years before, but it became sort of commonplace. And now it's a sort of regular thing. It's not going to be like an overnight change to where things get back to where they were. 
in the 2% range of inflation. But we're in a situation where this has been, if you're not confused about what's going on in the economy right now, then you really don't know anything about economics, I think is a way to think about it. Because this is a completely unprecedented period. I mean, the only thing you could really point back to is maybe World War II in terms of the level of government spending with a shift in industry, the stimulus component of this, rising interest rates, rising inflation, followed by falling interest rates, falling inflation in a very short period of time. But my just general stance here is there's likely a lot of boom related to COVID because there was major stimulus in the economy. The economy was not as bad off as potentially the Federal Reserve and Congress had anticipated in March of 2020. So there's a lot more stimulus than maybe was needed. And just like in equity markets where you get a big run up and then you need some time to digest and maybe you get a flat or down couple of years that is you know, coming off the heels of a really positive year. Maybe that's the same sort of thing with the economy where you get this increase in stimulus, increase in growth, increase in inflation, followed by a glut for a couple of years while things are working themselves out. I don't see that as necessarily a bad thing. And I think it's probably more likely that we just have some kinks to work out. I mean, this is a, a world that was essentially completely shut down for an extended period of time and then trying to restart all of that at once. At the same time, we've got conflict in Europe and potentially conflict in Asia with China and Taiwan. There's heightened tensions there. And so, look, there's a lot of uncertainty in the air. I think that these types of things, regardless of whether there was, there was conflict from a war perspective, they were going to have some issues regardless. And so that just throws another wrench into the whole pie. Over a three or five year period, we'll be talking about something else and this will all work itself out. It's confusing. And I think that it's difficult to position any sort of portfolio for a very short term trade. But what we were talking about earlier, if you're buying really high quality companies, with, let's just call the S&P 500 a collection of 500 extremely high quality companies as a reasonable valuation, and then with interest rates where they are now, and you hold that for a long period of time, you'll do well. I agree. All right, Doug. Well, I'm going to go back and get back to exploring Lisbon. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and, and I hope all of our guests enjoyed our conversation. If you think that your friends or family might enjoy this, please share it with them. Please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever platform they're listening on. But otherwise, we hope you have a great day, and we hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.